Please turn with me again to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. We are in the midst of our considerations as to how these verses relate to the service of song. What do they teach us? We have entered in upon broad considerations. First of principle. And we will uh, resume with that in just a few moments. We, we are working our way to a consideration of the history of the service of song. That will be coming probably in a week or two. But before we get there, we have been looking at the regulative principle of worship. Very important, because we will not be able to understand the history of the service of song without it. The regulative principle of worship, if you remember, I gave two definitions. First, if it's not commanded, then it's forbidden. And second, we do all that God commands in our worship without subtraction and without addition. This morning we got a start in... The relationship between the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship. And I must confess that when first exposed to these things, I uh, skated over some of these issues. But, but lay them side by side and the relationship might not be immediately evident. The second commandment forbids or prohibits the use of idols in worship. The regulative principle uh, forbids the use of anything that's not been commanded by God. And so the question is, what is the relationship between these two things? Or can we demonstrate a relationship between the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship? Last hour, we saw that uh, the historic Reformed churches always saw a relationship but, of course, we'll never rest easy until we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking to us. And so we were considering Deuteronomy chapter 12. Our modest results so far, and I hope that we are all together, we start with the express words of the second commandment. It is a prohibition of the use of idols in worship. Then we consider whether or not this was a problem of Object or means? Is the problem here the worshipping of false gods or worshipping God by illegitimate means or in the wrong way? The answer to that is yes, I suppose. This would also, with the first commandment, forbid the worship of the wrong object or an incorrect object, another god of any sort. But it also prohibits the worship of the true god, by means of idols. 
And if you uh, were able to get nothing out of the last hour, but you got that, then basically you're right in step. We cannot worship the true God, not even the true God, by means of idols. We saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You may want to flip back there with me uh, just now. But we still have a little bit further to go before we make the connection. We see that um, uh, no idols are to be used in worship, not even in the worship of the true God. But we also need to make our way to um, the prohibition of any uh, form of worship that God himself has not specifically commanded. This is the regulative principle of worship. So do you see, um, have I been tolerably clear with respect to the steps here? We're going step by step. The reason I bring us back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 is because Moses begins by uh, reminding them of the prohibition of uh, importing idols into the worship of Jehovah. But then he concludes with, a very broad statement of principle, whatsoever I have commanded, observe to do it, don't add to it, and don't take away from it. You see how he concludes with a much broader principle than what he began with. And I want to go back to the logic of this passage. Look again at the first uh, four verses. You remember the uh, Moses is preparing Israel to cross the Jordan and to invade a pagan land filled with idolatrous people and idolatrous worship practices. He's preparing them for the temptation. We might think that this would not be a tempting thing, but Israel certainly did. These, uh, these pagan worship practices might appear wise. There might be a great external show of religion. Silver and gold and old buildings have always been attractive to people. So there might be a temptation for them to take those pagan worship practices, gather up those idols, and bring them over into the worship of the true God. And God is telling them not to do that. Verse 3. And ye shall overthrow their altars, and break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. This brings us to the second great division of this passage. In verses 5 through 28, Moses reminds them that they are to continue in the worship that God had already commanded. He gives it basically a brief summary of worship forms that have been given to us in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And we won't read this whole passage. The first part of it is enough. It gets into some pretty... Um, specific argumentation about uh, where you can slaughter animals and all these. I, those things need not de delay us. We only need to note that God had commanded them how to do these things and they were to do it exactly without changing any of it. So verse 5. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek and thither thou shalt come. And thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and heave offerings of your hand 
and your vows and your freewill offerings and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. So you see here, uh, we have just a, a sample of all the different worship forms. It's, it's actually in some ways a remarkably comprehensive sample of the worship that God had commanded them, given just a handful of words here. But notice the logic already of the passage, and you can anticipate Moses' summary. I do want you to see the logical movement of the passage. Do what God told you to do in worship. Don't add idolatrous elements. Do all that God commanded you to do. Don't let the pagan practices intrude into your worship. One more time. God commanded you in great detail what to do. Do it exactly like that. And don't allow any of these other elements to intrude. And once you see that, you can understand the summary and how neatly the summary fits as the capstone of this discussion. Verse 29. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters, they have burnt in the fire to their gods. But thingsoever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. This summary uh, is sketched in broader terms than just a prohibition of crass idolatry. Uh, idols of wood, stone, and metal. Notice the, the comprehensive terms, second half of verse 30. How did these nations serve their gods? Notice that's comprehensive. It's not just the idols. But how did they do it? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. And then finally, verse 32, which is a um, very comprehensive term. What things soever I command you, whatever I've commanded you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. One objection at this point, I, I once had a, a fellow object to me that in verse 31, God is only ob objecting to abominable things. And of course, these people did do some uh, terrible things. The passing of their children through the fire uh, is perhaps one of the most gruesome examples of how debased they could become in their idolatry. But I do want you to notice that that's really not anything to, to the point or purpose here. Because verse 32 would not only include abominable things, but any other addition or diminishment. This anticipates something that we'll do in, in coming weeks. But you should understand that the natural traje trajectory of idolatry is always... Uh, from one degree of abomination to another. And it's an ongoing series of deba debasement until it uh, terminates in some of these horrors 
that are uh, described here. But my point with him, and something that I think is simple and irrefutable, is that verse 31 cannot overturn the logic of verse 32, which is uh, portrayed in the most... It's not just uh, things that are horrific and abominable exclude those things, but he says, whatsoever thing I've commanded you to do, do it. Don't add to it, and don't take away from it. The, the, logic of mo, mo, the logic of this passage is from no idols to no non-commanded thing. And that's Moses' own logic and his own movement. He moves from no idols, no graven images, to no non-commanded thing. And so we continue with the question. Now, again, now we've taken another step. This is the movement of Moses' logic. Can we follow him? Can we understand how he moves so easily from no idols to no non-commanded thing? Here, you have to remember where we leave off. We plant a stake here, and now we have to take another step back and talk about the, uh, the expanding significance of the Ten Commandments. Uh, most of you have probably read through the larger catechism. Have you ever been amazed at how much material they can get out of just a few words? Um, the, the commandment portion of the third commandment is 13 words in English. And they go on and on and on with its significance and applications. Let's look at this. In your outline, I, I do believe that I have uh, what, what I'm doing right now. So I want to teach you something about the commandments and the proper way to interpret and apply them, which usually goes far, far, far beyond the express words. But first, I want to show you a demonstration of what our divines did, and then I want to show you how they did it. And in doing so, I think you will have a much better understanding of Moses and how Moses moved so easily from no idols to no uncommanded thing in worship. The wording of the third commandment in English is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thirteen words. Larger Catechism 112 says this, What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires... Before I give you this, I want you to perform a, a mental exercise. Think about the commandment itself, not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Think about the commandment. And now as you listen to these, how many of these are easy for you to understand in light of the commandment? And how many seem difficult or you can't understand why they would talk about it in the context of this commandment? Okay, so it's a mental exercise. The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances... The word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing, by an holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. 
When we think about the words of the commandment, not to take the name of God in vain, or to use it in a light manner, to treat it like a light thing, some of this is pretty obvious. A reverent use of God's name, his attributes, his ordinances of worship, all of that's pretty plain, and we see the connection pretty readily. But some of this is a little harder to understand, isn't it? A reverent use of lots. In our day, that would be something like the casting of dice. The casting of lots was a way to determine the mind of the Lord in ancient times. Mystifying? Strange? You don't need to see the connection. All you need to see is that the connection is difficult and not evident on the source of it. The uh, third commandment um, uh, speaks directly to our speech, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. But they also have forbidden irreverent thoughts and meditations. How do they get from speech to thoughts and meditations? Um, I just want to raise the questions at this point. We'll come come to the answers here in, in just a moment. Larger Catechism 113. Again, think about the commandment. Some of this is really easy to understand. Some of it hard. What are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required and the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious, or wicked mentioning or otherwise using his titles attributes, ordinances, or works by blasphemy, perjury, all sinful cursings, oaths, vows, and lots, violating of our oaths and vows if lawful, and fulfilling them if of things unlawful, murmuring and quarreling at, curious prying into, and misapplying of God's decrees and providences, misinterpreting, misapplying, or any way perverting the word or any part of it to profane jests, curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, abusing it, the creatures, or anything contained under the name of God to charms or sinful lusts and practices, the maligning, scorning, reviling, or any wise opposing of God's truth, grace, and ways, making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister end, being ashamed of it, or ashamed to it, by unconformable, unwise, unfruitful, and offensive walking, or backsliding from it. If your eyes begin to glaze over by the end of that, you you are getting part of the point. They take 13 words and they get all of this material out of it. Some of it's real easy to understand. Of course, if we're prohibited from taking God's name in vain, then we can't abuse his name or ordinances. But harder to see. What is a sinful lot anyway? Here, uh, we might say that misinterpreting God's providence is a sin, but how is it related to the third commandment in God's name? The misapplication of God's word is said to be forbidden under the third commandment. Even unprofitable questions. 
I'm not going to endeavor to answer all of this. The questions are sort of the point. How do they move from 13 words to all of this material? I'll give you a, um, a little something here for you to consider, think on, and maybe make an object of study. Uh, with respect to uh, the Ten Commandments, you will do well to study Larger Catechism 99, which gives, the, which gives biblical principles for the right understanding of the commandments and their scope of application. Most of Larger Catechism 99 can be derived directly from the Sermon on the Mount and the way that Jesus uses and teaches the law. You remember that uh, Jesus was able to do this sort of thing in his teaching. He would start with, thou shalt not kill, a bodily action, but moves very quickly to words and the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, that's just one of uh, many rules or principles for the right understanding of the full scope of each of the Ten Commandments. So I commend this to you. This section is neglected, but it is only in the understanding of this that you will ever come to grips with how much material the divines were able to derive from each one of the commandments. So let's look at larger catechism 99. I'm not going to try to justify each one of these principles. I want to read through them and I'm going to take two of them and bring it back to our immediate subject at hand. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. One, that the law is perfect and bindeth everyone to full conformity in the whole man unto the righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever, so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. You might just think about James saying the one who breaks one commandment is guilty of the entire law. The law is perfect. It's a whole. It's a unit. Basically, anyone that transgresses any point becomes a breaker of the whole because they uh, assail the lawgiver himself. Verse 2, or second 2. That it is spiritual. And so reacheth the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures. You might think Jesus really develops this at great length in the Sermon on the Mount. That it's not just about your bodies. It's about your hearts. Three, that one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. We already had an illustration of this, that the first and second commandments, both and together, do forbid the worship of false gods. It's just the second commandment says a little bit more than that. But there's an overlap. That's what they're referring to here. For that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. We'll come back to this one in just a few moments. This has quite a bearing on the second commandment and the regulative principle. Five, 
that what God forbids is at no time to be done. What he commands is always our duty. And every particular duty is not to be done at all times. This can be a little bit of a mind bender. It's really not that difficult. When God says no idols, we're never to use any idols in our worship. So the prohibition is to be applied all the time. Positive commandments are always binding, but they're not necessarily applied at all times. For example, you read the Proverbs, we're always to speak the truth, but every truth is not always seasonable. And so the Proverbs will say a man is unwise if he always speaks all of the contents of his mind. And so, uh, so speaking the truth is always a duty, but it's not applied the same way in all particular contexts. It's not necessarily to be done at every moment. We have a duty to speak the truth, but we do well if we speak less. Six, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. We'll come back to this one, because this also is very important for the second commandment and the regulative principle. Seven, that what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound, according to our, our places, to endeavor that it be avoided or performed by others, according to the duty of their places. Uh, just an example of this, it's the duty of every man, according to his place and calling, to remove idols from the land. Uh, but uh, according to my place and calling, I might do it by preaching and even by personal moral suasion. The magistrate could remove them by force. I cannot. So that there's a recognition that commandments are applied according to place and calling. And finally, section 8, that, that in what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden them. So we're to be helpful one to another in the keeping of the commandments. So we've done, we've sort of taken a survey approach. Basically, in the applying of these rules, the Westminster Divines took the 13 words of the third commandment and they derived all of this material. And if each one of the rules can be justified, biblically, uh, they would be justified in all of these uh, applications. And we've just done a brief survey, but I think that you've seen that each one of these principles could be justified. So you take the, a single commandment and its significance and its scope is greatly increased or enlarged. What does all of this have to do with the second commandment and the regulative principle? Just everything. Look again at the fourth principle. That as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded, and so on. First, let me, let me endeavor to justify this principle as a form of application uh, and interpretation of the commandments. Consider the fifth commandment, honor father and mother. What the divines are saying is that, biblically speaking, it's a principle that if we're commanded to honor father and mother... Uh, its opposite or contrary is also uh, forbidden by implication. 
They derive this principle from Jesus himself. You remember Jesus said, God commanded saying, honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So he takes the fifth commandment, honor father and mother, and he places it alongside, he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. Leviticus 29 is the commandment of the one is a prohibition of its opposite. Another example would be um, God tells us thou shalt not kill. Its opposite would be the duty of the preservation of life. One of the famous examples is in ancient Israel. They would build little fences around their roofs. It was another room in the house. People would go up there and spend time. To preserve the life of your fellow man, you build a little fence so he didn't carelessly fall off. So the negative prohibition, thou shalt not kill, entails logically a positive prescription to preserve uh, the life of man, to use due means to preserve life. Another way of looking at this, God says, thou shalt not kill. If we pass by a wounded person on the street and simply ignore him, we can't say, well, I didn't kill him. We failed to keep the commandment in the preservation of his life. In bringing this to bear on the second commandment, the second commandment prohibits the use of idols in worship. What is its contrary? The contrary is, would be commanded. The implied contrary would be to hold fast to God's word as he has delivered it. Uh, and this comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 12. First he said, don't import idols. And then what's the contrary that they are to do? It's to hold fast to God's worship and do all the things that he had commanded them uh, to do. So we take that contrary that we're to uh, hold fast and do all of the things that God has commanded in his worship. What would then be the contrary of that? To decline from his worship. To anything else. Idolatry just being one particular example of that. But the broader scope would be to decline to anything else. To depart from his worship in any way. Measure or manner. Idolatry just being one example. So you see how we've moved. We've moved from no idols. A prohibition. To a positive prescription. Hold fast to all of God's worship. And then the contrary of that would be. The letting go. Not maintaining pure and entire God's worship. Declining to anything else or opposite. I would just observe, if this seems like a logical doublespeak or some sort of fast move, I just want you to observe that it's the very thing that Moses does. No idols. Adhere to God's worship. Don't change it in any way. In conclusion. That's the, that's the precise logical movement that Moses makes. The sixth principle is also very, quite relevant for what we're doing here. The sixth principle is that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded. Let me attempt to justify the principle, and then we'll talk about its application of the second commandment. First, uh, the fifth commandment is honor father and mother. This is also a commandment concerning things of like kind. So we also find in the scripture, fear God and honor the king. 
honor the king is an application that comes within the scope of the fifth commandment, basically the honoring of all superiors in their rank and station. You might also think of uh, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 as far as uh, commanding a double honor to be given to those that rule well, elders that uh, rule well in the church. So you start with honor father and mother, but all uh, duties of like kind are also within the scope of the commandment. So this would include all superiors. Um, if you're in the military, your superiors in the military, your superiors in civil society, your superiors in the uh, church and so on. You might also think of the seventh commandment in the way that Jesus does it. He says you do realize that the uh, seventh commandment is not just about physical adultery, but all things of like kind. The adulteries of the eye and of the heart. They all come within the, the scope of it as those of like kind. Now we come to the second commandment, which expressly forbids the use of idols in worship. Idolatry, and we're going to come back to this and discuss this more next week, but idolatry is a sort of human invention in worship. And so all other sorts of human invention are likewise forbidden. There are others of like kind. You remember, I think that you'll see this if you consider consider Romans 1. Romans 1 points out that man has a heart problem. He knows that there's a God. He sees God all around him in the creation. He sees God in the witness of his own conscience. But his problem is, he doesn't want to worship this God. He'd like very much to get this God out of his thinking so that he can continue on in his sinful course comfortably. This God is disturbing. Thoughts of coming judgment are disquieting. I want to put all of this away. And so it says he suppresses the knowledge of the truth. This doesn't mean contemporary society. We normally think of atheism, but this is just one way to do it. And it's not been the most popular way of doing it historically. He suppresses the knowledge of the truth. And the way he gets away from the true God is he invents his own. And the ancient way of doing that is by idolatry. So he trades the glory of the invisible God for these uh, tangible gods made out of wood and stone. Gods that don't, dis- uh, that don't disapprove of him and his sinful course. Basically, to get away from the true God, what does he do? He innovates in worship. And by each degree of in- innovation, the face of God, the true face of God, recedes into the background until it completely disappears and you've got a completely different God. A God with whom a sinful person can live in relative comfort. Because after all, when you think about idolatry at its end, usually those idols, the gods that they portrayed, were worse than men. So certainly they wouldn't disapprove of us. And now we can run along in our sinful course. We're veritably imitating the gods now in our uh, sinfulness. Idolatry has been the great means of Worshipping the true God out of the world. Using uh, illegitimate means of worship to try to get God, the true God, out of the world and out of our thinking. So here, um, 
if idolatry is a, is a means of human invention and a human intrusion into the worship, all other sorts of human invention of like kind would also be forbidden. And I just wanted to point out, Paul makes a lot of this principle, and we'll talk more about this, but we have to understand that the fallen mind, imagination, and will is no legitimate uh, source for means and modes of the worship of the true God. Turn with me. We'll look at just one final passage. Colossians chapter 2. Just a little background on Colossians. This will also get you ready to some degree for next week. You remember Moses is getting ready to send Israelites into the midst of pagans. The Colossians are already there. They're already in the middle of it. They live in a strange religious matrix. It's syncretistic. You have to understand that the Greco-Roman world wasn't much inclined to persecute religions out of the world. They wanted to absorb them. And so it just becomes one of many voices. Our culture is very much like this. How do, how do you get rid of Christianity? You don't persecute it out. You absorb it. And it becomes just one of a great many voices. And you just start to blend all of these things together. You might think of the Greco-Roman as a giant world as a giant religious blender. They take these things and they blend it all up together and mix it up together. Two principal threats to the Colossian Christians. You have Judaizing teachers who are trying to impose upon them the forms of worship from the old administration. Basically, they're wanting to say, Jesus came and perhaps he did redeem us, but uh, with respect to the outward forms of our religion, everything continues. So basically, you Colossian Gentiles must become Jews in order to be true Christians. So they're dealing with that. But they're also dealing with um, Gentile philosophy, which seems very wise, very smart, and Gentile forms of worship. They, they really took to what were called the mystery religions. You know, these things were things that were done in secret. They seemed sort of extra holy. They were full of all sorts of religious mystery and symbolism. All of this to the Colossian mind is very attractive. All of it. And the tendency of Recent converts in this area is to just want to blend all of this stuff up together. Paul makes a very basic theological point upon which this whole epistle hinges. Jesus Christ is fully sufficient. You don't need any of this other stuff. And because there's a certain beguiling of the mind, if I were to develop the principle a little bit further, Paul's principle point is... All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. All of them. You don't need to go to Judaism and you don't need to go to pagan philosophy to find other sources of wisdom. You already have it in Jesus Christ as he's been delivered to you in the apostolic preaching. Basically he's saying something like this. 
Why are you why are you wandering around for wisdom? You already have it. All of the treasures, wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ, and He has been delivered to you already in the apostolic preaching. It's uh, it's the problem of the full bucket. If you have all of the treasures of true wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ, you can't add anything to all. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ Jesus. You can't add any more water to that bucket. So you don't need to go to these other sources of pretended wisdom. You already have it. Paul is going to bring this to bear upon worship at the end of chapter 2. And what he's going to basically say is that you don't need to go some other place how to, to learn how to worship God in an acceptable manner. Jesus Christ, in the apostolic preaching, has already taught you how to worship. And there's not another thing that you need to know in order to worship God in an acceptable manner. A manner that's glorifying to him and good for you. This is the full sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his prophetic office to teach us how to worship. This is another way of uh, another angle on the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you believe as a Christian person that the Bible tells you everything that you need to believe and everything that you need to do in order to be pleasing to God? If you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, you won't feel the need to run here and there learning this way to worship and that way to worship. You already have it. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ Jesus. You don't have to go anywhere. And by way of negative contrast, Paul is going to highlight that the human, the fallen human mind, imagination and will, these are all illegitimate sources for worship. First of all, we don't know anything about the hidden world. We don't know anything about the invisible nature of God unless he reveals himself. So there's a problem with the human mind in and of itself. We need God to reveal himself, even if we were unfallen. But then you've got the problem of the fallen mind, which has a tendency to twist what truth it has. Uh, and then uh, you can say that the, the problem with the imagination. Uh, we're going to look at this in the concrete. And then the will. We, just, we do these things because we want to do them, because we like them. And none of that is the point in worship. If you ever ask somebody, say they're visiting a church, and you say, what did you think of the worship? And they say, I, I like the preaching, but I didn't care for the singing. Right away you can tell that, that they sort of missed the point. Because the point is not what we like. You see, that's using the human will and desire as a source for worship. The point is, what has God commanded? What's glorifying to him? And not what's pleasing to us, but what's good for us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. These Gentiles were uh, apparently commending the worship of angels, probably not as an end in and of itself, but as intermediaries. Basically, you can imagine something like this. And notice also the reference to voluntary humility. It seems to work something like this. Uh, you poor man. Um, in your fallenness, you cannot go directly to Jesus Christ 
because he's holy and you're fallen. If you were a truly humble person, you would go through the intermediary, an angel, who will represent you to Jesus Christ. This is a very persuasive theology. Almost all of Roman theology hinges upon it. Other mediators between the soul and Jesus Christ. But notice that Paul talks about this not as a true humility, but a voluntary humility or a humility that has its origin in the human will. It's a fictitious, unrequired humility. But he says, let no man beguile of your reward in a voluntary or will humility and worshiping of angels. And then notice the insufficiency of the human mind intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There was a very elaborate Greco-Roman theology concerning angels, their orders, how they could intermediate between man and the deities. Paul says none of this stuff has been revealed. It's nothing other but the, but the vain imagination of men. And the vain imagination of men has now generated forms of worship. And what you're noticing also, and we'll talk a lot more about this in coming weeks, as they do so, what disappears? The gospel, in this particular case, the gospel is perverted and obscured. Maintaining pure worship is just that important. If we're not careful before you know it, God has receded and has disappeared and the gospel is gone. And it might all still look very uh, religious. It has a theology, a sophisticated theology of angelology and how they mediate between men and the gods. And yet it's nothing but vain imagination and willful, invented humility that's destroyed the gospel. Verse 19, and negatively, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. We have before us here uh, an option. We can go one of two ways. We can go and worship the way of the vain imagination and the will. And we can have all of these other things, but in doing so, we let go of the head. And who is the head? Jesus Christ. We don't hold fast the head. And what do we lose when we let go? What is it that he supplies to us in our worship? He nourishes us. Notice the, this wholesome picture of people holding fast to Jesus Christ in the worship. And then the nourishment just flows down from the head to the whole body. Every joint and band nourished and knit together and Increasing with the increase of God, all growing up together. It's language of edification, wholesomeness, vitality, unity. It's beautiful uh, or such few words, but you can have one or the other. You can have the angel intermediary that's been produced by your fleshly mind, or you can hold fast to the head in his worship and have all of this nourishment simply flow down to you. Verse 20. Now he seems to turn and he casts a glance upon uh, the Jewish elements that are intruding. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is so living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. 
This can be a little bit obscure to us if you don't understand the Apostle's vocabulary. He says, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, from the elements of the world, by this he means those, those physical Old Testament ceremonies, the elements, the basic things of the world that were used to teach a church under age spiritual truths. But his point here is if we've, if we've um, died with Christ and arisen again with him, why do we act as if we are still alive to the old ordinances and as if they were still alive and active upon us? So he says, why are you, why is it, if you're dead with Christ, why is it as if you are living in that same world and subject to ordinances? Touch not the dead and the leprous and so on. Uh, Taste not the dietary uh, prohibitions and handle not, which is a repetition really of the first, which all are to perish with the using. These things were given for, for a time. They were carnal ordinances to teach children about spiritual truths, and now they have perished in the using of them. They are, if you will, used up. And now the idea is that the church is a mature and um, complete man. But I want you to notice here that although these things were commanded by God of old, uh, with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God rescinded the command, so to continue to impose these things is now the commandments and doctrines of men. After God has rescinded it and given another form of worship, or rather continued only a handful of the forms of worship that were already in existence, now to continue in these things is the mere commandments and doctrines of men. Beloved, does that sound like a very favorable thing? Let me ask you another question. In ancient times, God gave these commandments concerning these these uh, elements or rudiments of the world, this grand material show to teach children about spiritual truths. And then he removed them and then he criticizes them as the mere doctrines and commandments of men. These were things that he had commanded of old, but now he criticizes them himself as doctrines and commandments of men. How do you think that God would respond to things that he never commanded, never asked for, never desired in the whole history of the world? Verse 23. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. You read the you read the Puritans. This is what they'll always call it. Violations of the regulative principle. They will always call will worship. It doesn't have its source in the head. It has its source in the human will and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I want you to take just one thing away from this passage if you don't remember anything else. Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church, is the source of the forms and order of worship in his house, his place, his temple, his palace. And the human mind, imagination, and will are contemplated here as illegitimate sources of uh, worship. Let me do a brief summary. I know that this has been um, a hefty bit of exercise. But let me give you the skeleton, sort of point by point, to make sure that you followed along. We, Our whole burden... You say, Pastor, it takes you a long time to say something that's relatively simple. And it is simple, but I don't want to gloss the points. 
The connections must be firm. Much depends upon it. We're moving from the second commandment to the regulative principle of worship. We started with the express words of the commandment, forbidding idolatry in worship. Then we saw that the express words actually had a broader compass of application than just idols. It was referring really to any illegitimate means in worship. We had a first proof of the regulative principle in chapter 12. As Moses moves from no idols to no non-commanded thing. We looked at some principles of uh, the interpretation of commandments that justify it. I think uh, most compellingly that when there's a prohibition, all things of like kind are also prohibited. These are uh, an idol as a human invention and intrusion into worship. All other uh, human inventions and intrusions in worship are likewise forbidden. Uh, and then we saw that uh, the human uh, mind, imagination, and will are illegitimate sources. When these become the sources of forms of worship, those are illegitimate intrusions into the worship of God. And eventually they do tend to their grosser sort. First, open idolatry, and before you know it, God is no longer recognizable as he's described in the, in the worship, and the gospel begins to disappear. Next week, I'm hoping for a little bit uh, easier ground. Uh, I want to first talk about the regulative principle in both testaments and clear away a possible objection. Uh, runs something like this. Well, that's mostly just Old Testament thought, isn't it? When, when God used to be so strict about these things. Uh, don't we have greater liberties under the new administration? Uh, we need to make some, some careful uh, distinctions there. What is the Christian's liberty? Have we been liberated from the old ceremonies to do whatever we wanted? Or have we been liberated from the doctrines and commandments of men to serve God? What is the Christian's true liberty? To do whatever he wants? Or liberated from the doctrines and commandments of men so he can serve God and obey his commandments? I also want to talk about the vital spiritual importance of the regulative principle of worship. And the Lord willing, perhaps we will, we will uh, get to the history. But I do want to show that this is a vital spiritual importance. This is not just... Uh, a nice bit of logic, but this has everything to do with Jesus Christ as king of his church, as the prophetic voice in his church, which must be maintained, and in his priesthood, the worship that he has promised to mediate on our behalf to God the Father. And it has everything to do with the preservation of true notions of God and the gospel. So these are very important things. If you have ever wondered, how is it that... Um, how is it that you can present Calvinism to another professing Christian and they say, brother, I don't worship that God? It's a very telling statement. The worship has carried them far away in their notions of God and whether or not he can be uh, sovereign. Uh, what kind of piety is inculcated in the Psalter? What kind of piety is inculcated in the hymnals, even the very best hymnals? They're not the same. And so we're talking about the preservation of true religion. It's true theology. It's true practice. Uh, so very much is at stake. 
Let us pray together.